This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Jude the Obscure by Thomas Hardy. Book the Second, Chapter Four. He was a handy man at his trade, an all-around man, as artisans in country towns are apt to be. In London, the man who carves the boss or knob of leafage declines to cut the fragment of molding which merges in that leafage, as if it were a degradation to do the second half of one whole. When there was not much Gothic molding for Jude to run, or much window tracery on the bankers, he would go out lettering monuments or tombstones and take a pleasure in the change of handiwork. The next time that he saw her was when he was on a ladder executing a job of this sort inside one of the churches. There was a short morning service, and when the parson entered, Jude came down from his ladder and sat with the half dozen people forming the congregation till the prayer should be ended and he could resume his tapping. He did not observe till the service was half over that one of the women was Sue, who had perforce accompanied the elderly Miss Fontover thither. Jude sat watching her pretty shoulders, her easy, curiously nonchalant risings and sittings, and her perfunctory genuflections, and thought what a help such an Anglican would have been to him in happier circumstances. It was not so much his anxiety to get on with his work that made him go up to it immediately the worshippers began to take their leave. It was that he dared not, in this holy spot, confront the woman who was beginning to influence him in such an indescribable manner. Those three enormous reasons why he must not attempt intimate acquaintance with Sue Bridehead, now that his interest in her had shown itself to be unmistakably of a sexual kind, loomed as stubbornly as ever. But it was also obvious that man could not live by work alone, that the particular man Jude, at any rate, wanted something to love. Some men would have rushed incontinently to her, snatched the pleasure of easy friendship which she could hardly refuse, and have left the rest chance but not so Jude, at first. But as the days, and still more particularly the lonely evenings, dragged along, he found himself, to his moral consternation, to be thinking more of her instead of thinking less of her, and experiencing a fearful bliss in doing what was erratic, informal, and unexpected. Surrounded by her influence all day, walking past the spot she frequented, he was always thinking of her, and was obliged to own to himself that his conscience was likely to be the loser in this battle. To be sure, she was almost an ideality to him still. Perhaps to know her would be to cure himself of this unexpected and unauthorized passion. A voice whispered that, though he desired to know her, he did not desire to be cured. There was not the least doubt that from his own orthodox point of view the situation was growing immoral. For Sue to be the loved one of a man who was licensed by the laws of his country to love Arabella, and none other unto his life's end, was a pretty bad second beginning, when the man was bent on such a course as Jude proposed. This conviction was so real with him that one day, when, as was frequent, he was at work in a neighboring village church alone, he felt it to be his duty to pray against his weakness. But much as he wished to be an exemplar in these things, he could not get on. It was quite impossible, he found, to ask to be delivered from temptation when your heart's desire was to be tempted unto seventy times seven. So he excused himself. After all, he said, it is not altogether an erotolepsy that is the matter with me, as at that first time I can see that she is exceptionally bright. 
and it is partly a wish for intellectual sympathy and a craving for loving-kindness in my solitude. Thus he went on adoring her, fearing to realize that it was human perversity. For whatever soothes virtues, talents, or ecclesiastical saturation, it was certain that those items were not at all the cause of his affection for her. On an afternoon at this time, a young girl entered the stonemason's yard with some hesitation, and lifting her skirts to avoid draggling them in the white dust, crossed towards the office. "'That's a nice girl,' said one of the men known as Uncle Joe. "'Who is she?' asked another. "'I don't know. I've seen her about, here and there. Why, yes, she's the daughter of that clever chap Bridehead who did all the wrought ironwork at St. Silas's ten years ago, and went away to London afterwards. I don't know what he's doing now, not much, I fancy, as she's come back here.' Meanwhile, the young woman had knocked at the office door and asked if Mr. Jude Foley was at work in the yard. It so happened that Jude had gone out somewhere or other that afternoon, which information she received with a look of disappointment, and went away immediately. When Jude returned, they told him and described her, whereupon he exclaimed, "'Why, that's my cousin Sue!' He looked along the street after her, but she was out of sight. He had no longer any thought of a conscientious avoidance of her, and resolved to call upon her that very evening. And when he reached his lodging, he found a note from her, a first note, one of those documents which, simple and commonplace in themselves, are seen retrospectively to have been pregnant with impassioned consequences. The very unconsciousness of a looming drama which is shown in such innocent first epistles from women to men, or vice versa, makes them, when such a drama follows, and they are read over by the purple or lurid light of it, all the more impressive, solemn, and in cases, terrible. Sue's was of a most artless and natural kind. She addressed him as her dear cousin Jude, said that she only just learnt by the merest accident that he was living in Christminster, and reproached him with not letting her know. They might have had such nice times together, she said, for she was thrown much upon herself, and had hardly any congenial friend. But now there was every probability of her soon going away, so that the chance of companionship would be lost perhaps for ever. A cold sweat overspread Jude at the news that she was going away. That was a contingency he had never thought of, and it spurred him to write all the more quickly to her. He would meet her that very evening, he said, one hour from the time of writing, at the cross in the pavement which marked the spot of martyrdoms. When he had dispatched the note by a boy, he regretted that in his hurry he should have suggested to her to meet him out of doors, when he might have said he would call upon her. It was, in fact, the country custom to meet thus, and nothing else had occurred to him. Arabella had been met in the same way, unfortunately, and it might not seem respectable to a dear girl like Sue. However, it could not be helped now, and he moved towards the point a few minutes before the hour, under the glimmer of the newly lighted lamps. The broad street was silent and almost deserted, although it was not late. He saw a figure on the other side, which turned out to be hers, and they both converged towards the cross-mark at the same moment. Before either had reached it, she called out to him, "'I'm not going to meet you just there, for the first time in my life. Come further on.' The voice, though positive and silvery, had been tremulous. They walked on in parallel lines, and waiting her pleasure, Jude watched till she showed signs of closing in, when he did likewise, the place being where the carrier's cart stood in the daytime, though there was none on the spot then. "'I'm sorry that I asked you to meet me and didn't call,' began Jude with the bashfulness of a lover. "'But I thought it would save time if we were going to walk.' "'Oh, I don't mind that,' she said with the freedom of a friend. "'I have really no place to ask anybody into. 
What I meant was that the place you chose was so horrid. I suppose I ought not to say horrid. I mean gloomy and inauspicious in its associations. But isn't it funny to begin like this when I don't know you yet? She looked him up and down curiously, though Jude did not look much at her. You seem to know me more than I know you, she added. Yes, I have seen you now and then. And you knew who I was and didn't speak? And now I am going away. Yes, that's unfortunate. I have hardly any other friend. I have, indeed, one very old friend here somewhere, but I don't quite like to call on him just yet. I wonder if you know anything of him, Mr. Phillotson? A parson somewhere about the country, I think he is. No, I only know of one Mr. Phillotson. He lives a little way out in the country at Lumsden. He's a village schoolmaster. Ah, I wonder if he's the same. Surely it is impossible. Only a schoolmaster still? Do you know his Christian name? Is it Richard? Yes, it is. I've directed books to him, though I've never seen him. Then he couldn't do it. Jude's countenance fell, for how could he succeed in an enterprise wherein the great Phillotson had failed? He would have had a day of despair if the news had not arrived during his sweet Sue's presence. But even at this moment he had visions of how Phillotson's failure in the grand university scheme would depress him when she had gone. "'As we're going to take a walk, suppose we go and call upon him,' said Jude suddenly. "'It is not late.' She agreed, and they went along up a hill, and through some prettily wooded country. Presently the embattled tower and square turret of the church rose into the sky, and then the schoolhouse. They inquired of a person in the street if Mr. Phillotson was likely to be at home, and were informed that he was always at home. A knock brought him to the schoolhouse door, with a candle in his hand and a look of inquiry on his face, which had grown thin and careworn since Jude last set eyes on him. That after all these years the meeting with Mr. Phillotson should be of this homely complexion destroyed at one stroke the halo which had surrounded the schoolmaster's figure in Jude's imagination ever since their parting. It created in him at the same time a sympathy with Phillotson as an obviously much chastened and disappointed man. Jude told him his name, and said he had come to see him as an old friend who had been kind to him in his youthful days. "'I don't remember you in the least,' said the schoolmaster thoughtfully. "'You were one of my pupils, you say. Yes, no doubt. But they number so many thousands by this time of my life, and have naturally changed so much, that I remember very few except the quite recent ones.' It was out at Marygreen, said Jude, wishing he had not come. Yes, I was there a short time. And this is an old pupil, too? No, that's my cousin. I wrote to you for some grammars, if you recollect, and you sent them. Ah, yes, I do dimly recall that incident. It was very kind of you to do it, and it was you who first started me on that course. On the morning you left Marygreen, when your goods were on the wagon, you wished me good-bye, and said your scheme was to be a university man and enter the church that a degree was the necessary hallmark of one who wanted to do anything as a theologian or teacher. I remember I thought all that privately, but I wonder I did not keep my own counsel. The idea was given up years ago. I have never forgotten it. It was that which brought me to this part of the country, and out here to see you to-night. Come in, said Phillotson, and your cousin, too. They entered the parlor of the schoolhouse, where there was a lamp with a paper shade which threw the light down on three or four books. Phillotson took it off so that they could see each other better, and the rays fell on the nervous little face and vivacious dark eyes and hair of Sue, on the earnest features of her cousin, and on the schoolmaster's own maturer face and figure, showing him to be a spare and thoughtful personage of five and forty, 
with a thin-lipped, somewhat refined mouth, a slightly stooping habit, and a black frock-coat, which from continued friction shone a little at the shoulder-blades, the middle of the back, and the elbows. The old friendship was imperceptibly renewed, the schoolmaster speaking of his experiences and the cousins of theirs. He told them that he still thought of the church sometimes, and that though he could not enter it as he had intended to in former years, he might enter it as a licentiate. Meanwhile, he said, he was comfortable in his present position, though he was in want of a pupil-teacher. They did not stay to supper, Sue having to be indoors before it grew late, and the road was retraced to Christminster. Though they had talked of nothing more than general subjects, Jude was surprised to find what a revelation of woman his cousin was to him. She was so vibrant that everything she did seemed to have its source in feeling. An exciting thought would make her walk ahead so fast that he could hardly keep up with her, and her sensitiveness on some points was such that it might have been misread as vanity. It was with heart-sickness he perceived that, while her sentiments toward him were those of the frankest friendliness only, he loved her more than before coming acquainted with her, and the gloom of the walk home lay not in the night overhead, but in the thought of her departure. "'Why must you leave Christminster?' he said regretfully. "'How can you do otherwise than cling to a city in whose history such men as Newman, Pusey, Ward, Kebble loom so large?' "'Yes, they do. Though how large do they loom in the history of the world? What a funny reason for caring to stay. I should never have thought of it.' She laughed. "'Well, I must go.' she continued. Miss Fontover, one of the partners whom I serve, is offended with me, and I with her, and it is best to go. How did that happen? She broke some statuary of mine. Oh, willfully? Yes, she found it in my room, and though it was my property, she threw it on the floor and stamped on it, because it was not according to her taste, and ground the arms and the head of one of the figures all to bits with her heel, a horrid thing. Too Catholic apostolic for her, I suppose? No doubt she called them popish images and talked of the invocation of saints. No, no, she didn't do that. She saw the matter quite differently. Ah, then I am surprised. Yes, it was for quite some other reason that she didn't like my patron saints. So I was led to retort upon her, and the end of it was that I resolved not to stay, but to get into an occupation in which I shall be more independent. Why don't you try teaching again? You once did, I heard. I never thought of resuming it, for I was getting on as an art designer. Do let me ask Mr. Phillotson to let you try your hand in his school. If you like it and go to a training college and become a first-class certified mistress, you get twice as large an income as any designer or church artist, and twice as much freedom. Well, ask him. Now I must go in. Good-bye, dear Jude. I am so glad we have met at last. We needn't quarrel because our parents did, need we? Jude did not like to let her see quite how much he agreed with her, and went his way to the remote street in which he had his lodging. To keep Sue Bridehead near him was now a desire which operated without regard of consequences, and the next evening he again set out for Lumsden, fearing to trust to the persuasive effects of a note only. The schoolmaster was unprepared for such a proposal. "'What I rather wanted was a second year's transfer, as it is called,' he said. Of course, your cousin would do, personally, but she has had no experience. Oh, she has, has she? Does she really think of adopting teaching as a profession? Jude said she was disposed to do so, he thought, and his ingenious arguments on her natural fitness for assisting Mr. Phillotson, of which Jude knew nothing whatever, so influenced the schoolmaster that he said he would engage her, assuring Jude as a friend 
that unless his cousin really meant to follow on in the same course, and regarded this step as the first stage of an apprenticeship, of which her training in a normal school should be the second stage, her time would be wasted quite, the salary being merely nominal. The day after this visit, Phillotson received a letter from Jude, containing the information that he had again consulted his cousin, who took more and more warmly to the idea of tuition, and that she had agreed to come. It did not occur for a moment to the schoolmaster and recluse that Jude's ardor in promoting the arrangement arose from any other feelings towards Sue than the instinct of cooperation common among members of the same family. End of chapter 4